Welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all their support with these podcasts. Joining me today, we have Kevin Rooney. Kevin is an anaesthetist and intensivist at the Royal Alexandra Hospital in Paisley, the clinical director for critical care in the Clyde sector of NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde. He's joining us today to talk about all things sepsis. Kevin, thanks so much for agreeing to come on and chat to us. And thank you for inviting me. I guess the logical place to start is to look at what it is we're talking about here. So can you define sepsis for the listeners? So sepsis is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. So it's essentially infection plus organ failure. The organ failure could be defined as a respiratory failure, coagulopathy, liver, cardiovascular, renal failure, or indeed an altered conscious level. It's interesting that the bit that always surprises me is that it's the dysregulation of the host response rather than the sort of the bacteria that are necessarily causing the problem. Yeah, that's the case. Basically what is happening, your body is fighting an infection, but it's also it's injuring itself at the same time. It's a dysregulator, so it's an overdrive. The body responds to the infection. And in terms of the scale of the issue, we've all kind of heard news stories and things, but where are we at in Scotland in terms of sepsis numbers? So I think, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think basically the Scottish figures are that one person every four hours dies as a result of sepsis. I can definitely give you some international figures. According to the WHO, sepsis affects 30 million people annually. So that is equivalent of about 82,000 people daily, or approximately 145 747 jumbo jets. <laughs> of those 82,000 people who get sepsis on a daily basis, actually what happens is there is about 16,000 people who die from sepsis every single day, and that's equivalent of 29 of these 747 jets falling out of the sky daily. And that's today, tomorrow, ad infinitum, and for the foreseeable future. The other thing that's probably worth seeing is, unless you've lived in a bubble, everyone's aware of COVID and the pandemic that we've been living through for the last 18 months or so. COVID-19 is sepsis, and basically it's life-threatening organism dysfunction, usually respiratory failure, caused by the body's reaction to the virus. The numbers kind of put it in context that this is a a far bigger problem than any of the big diseases that get national headlines day in day out and yet it's something that is fairly poorly managed from what I've seen. In Scotland you talked about one person every eight hours dying of sepsis Mm -hmm. and presumably that there are multiple points along this journey where we can intervene. Talk us through how you would screen for sepsis and initial actions that, that we could look at. As I said earlier on, sepsis is life-setting or dysfunction. 
Private basically that a paramedic could screen for sepsis is through the use of News 2, uh, so the National Early Warning Scoring System. If you sc- score a news of five or above, you're at medium clinical risk, and that is likely due to sepsis if infection is the cause. There are other tools out there. There's Quick Sofa, and it's respiratory rate greater than 22, alternamentation, or a systolic blood pressure less than 100. So if you have two or more of those clinical criteria, you're at an increased risk of an adverse outcome from infection and an increased risk of sepsis. So basically what the hard and fast definitions for sepsis would actually have to be done within a hospital where they would be looking for evidence of organ dysfunction and that would be things like the PEO2FL2 ratio, what the blood pressure is, what the GCS is, bilirubin, creatinine and platelet level. But certainly paramedics will be able to identify patients at increased risk uh, of sepsis by using the news 2 score. And this is within the context of a, of a degree of suspicion that there is an infection that's driving the patient yeah. presentation? Yes, uh uh-huh. So obviously news works for any disease, it works for trauma, it works for sepsis, you know. In in the context of a likely infected process, if someone has a news of five and above, balanced probability is likely to have sepsis and an increased risk of an adverse outcome. And in terms of scoring, I know in the past at at med school I was drilled into learning the, the criteria for SIRS and the criteria for sepsis and the criteria for severe sepsis. I get the impression that we're moving away from those a little bit to a simpler definition, a simple way of identifying. We're currently on the third iteration of sepsis definitions, the sepsis three definitions. And that's been really taken just to simplify things. It has done that. The old definition of SIRS criteria that you mentioned, that's tachycardia, tachypnea, a higher low white count, higher low temperature. To be honest, they even get SIRS running for a bus. So it's very non-specific. <laughs> You know, it was a tool to recognise people who were at an increased risk of an inflammatory response, but there could be anxiety could give you SIRS criteria. And the the old definition of sepsis was SIRS criteria plus infection, but that was too non-specific. Basically, now we just have sepsis and septic shock. So sepsis, as I said earlier on, is life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. If you want to define organ dysfunction, that's an acute change in a total SOFA score of more than greater than equal to two points. And then the other definition you have is septic shock, which is persisting hypotension, requiring vasopressors to maintain your mean arterial pressure greater than 65 and a serum lactate level greater than two, despite adequate volume resuscitation. So certainly the definitions of sepsis are now it's far more stringent. So the mortality, from, from using those definitions of sepsis, you've got a mortality of about 10%, 10 to 15% for sepsis. If you've got septic shock, you've got a mortality of about 40%. So we know from the outset, let's say that as a basic response, we've been called to somebody's house who's got new confusion, they are perhaps hypotensive, and, and we've got good evidence that there is, let's say for the sake of argument, some basal crackles on their chest. So we're thinking mm-hmm. that they have a respiratory infective source for their sepsis. Once they meet the criteria, what are the things that we can do to improve their outcomes? So the first thing I would do is follow your ATE approach. 
Okay, so if we don't sort out the airway, we don't sort out the breathing, there's no point in worrying about circulation, disability and exposure. So uh, you want to ensure the patient has a clear airway, they're talking to you, they're breathing, what's the respiratory rate, do they need oxygen, what's their saturations? And then moving on to circulation. When you're on circulation, if you can, the piece hypotensive, you want to uh, establish venous access. If you are depending on the level of the first responder, are you happy to administer a fluid challenge? Are you happy that the crackles in the chest are due to a chest infection? But they could also be due to cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So you have to be sure of taking into account the, the full history and examination of the patient and what your clinical suspicions are. But if the patient's hypotensive and you've got strong suspicion of infection, I would deliver about 250 mils of a balanced solution at Hartman's and reassess the patient. Again, depending where you are as a, as a basic responder, if you are in Bremar and you've got an hour's journey to hospital, you may, again, consider delivering broad-spectrum antibiotic to help cover the, the likely focus of infection. So if it was chest infection, you could consider some amoxicillin or comoxiclav. We've got reasonably simple interventions, albeit with some fairly high-level decision-making about etiology of the disease. Mm -hmm. But everything else is things that, as basic responders, you know, they should be happy to get some access, uh, give some fluids, and potentially give some antibiotics, depending on the context. One of the headaches that often comes for me is if I've got a delayed transfer or I'm waiting a long time for a crew, I give my fluid bolus and nothing really happens, and I'm moving on to, to second and third fluid boluses, there's a point at which... I start to get fairly twitchy about, about how much salty water this patient's had. What are your thoughts about, I hesitate to say limit, but, but when you become uncomfortable with just plain fluid resuscitation? To give you a blanket number is difficult eh, because each individual patient we should treat as an individual patient. Certainly, I would always deliver alipots of 250 and go back and reassess. You know what I mean? So I would be looking, again, going back, and when I'm saying go back and reassess, going through the airway breathing circulation. So are the patient still maintaining the airway? Are they talking to me? Breathing, have the saturations got better or have they got worse? Have they got widespread coarse crackles on their chest? You know, certainly if someone has good going sepsis and septic shock, it's not uncommon to deliver two litres of fluid and even more in the hospital setting. I suppose one of the things you could do if you're waiting for the paramedic crew to arrive is, is discuss the patients with EMRS. Uh, so they are used to managing people in a remote and rural situation. They are very happy to give advice over the phone. Again, I pay attention to things like capillary return as well. As a patient, you know, could you catheterize them? Are we passing urine? All of these things should make a difference. Do you have the ability to measure a lactate would be the other thing. I think it would be very important. Yes, unfortunately, as of yet, sandbiper bags don't have the ability to measure pre-hospital lactate, although some of mm -hmm. the, the peripheral GP-led hospitals do have a variety of bedside tests. I guess the next step on this journey is, again, it's not infrequent that we get called to assist with other crews for cardiac arrests. So in a cardiac arrest where you feel that sepsis is possibly the underlying driver, assuming that all of the basic ALS stuff is happening, what are the likely causes of arrest within the picture of sepsis? The likely cause of, of arrest in sepsis would, would be obviously hypovolemia. 
septic shock and a kind of a vasoplegic patient. I've managed the ALS algorithms and, and follow the PEA algorithm. So, but I think that the most common cause of cardiac arrest in a patient would be hypovolemia and vasoplegia. BLS or ALS and give some fluids and give you adrenaline every three minutes as part of your ALS protocol. And similar sort of numbers in terms of maybe bunging up to a couple of litres of fluid in to see if you get a response? Does that sound yeah. like a reasonable intervention? It'd be unlikely to meet someone just suddenly drop dead in front of you in the street but with sepsis as a cause of cardiac arrest. This would be a patient who would probably be deteriorating over time. So hopefully you would have had time to assess the patient and you know and start giving them fluid before he has a cardiac arrest. I think by the time they have a cardiac arrest, their outcome will be poor from that. You know, I would just go through your four H's and four T's for management of a cardiac arrest patient. Now the other real headache is patient group who have uh, existing cardiac disease and uh, people get pretty nervous about giving large volumes of fluid in the context of, of known heart failure mm-hmm. um, do you have any suggestions and tips for responders to try and walk the line between the septic patient who's potentially intravascularly dry but also has got significant heart failure even if you have heart failure that your fluid status can obviously be optimised again for any patient I always say the fluid challenge has to be individualised for that patient. So again, I'd go back to, you know, if, if you think the patient is shocked and you think the patient is septic and is, is hypovolemic, I'd go back to giving a 250ml fluid challenge and go back in and reassessing the patient. So I'd be paying particular attention to their GVP, to their capillary turn. If they've got any crackles in their chest, taking it from that stage. I wouldn't be drowning the patient fluid if I didn't think it was appropriate. It may be actually appropriate to give them a diuretic. You know, as you quite rightly said, you can have you can have an elderly person with sepsis and moderate LV dysfunction in the community. So you've got a fine line in managing these patients. So little bits and constant reassessment and yep. sort of titrate to effect. Yep, definitely titrate for the individual patient. I guess from what you've said all the way through this, it's been aliquots of fluid, antibiotics, oxygen therapy. Is there anything that is new that is developing in sepsis in terms of the pre-hospital world, things that we can do or we can start thinking about in the pre-hospital environment? Early recognition is key, so having a low index of suspicion and calculating a new score will allow you to identify someone who's at an increased risk of an adverse outcome. If you don't have access to a news chart, you could do the quick sofa. So you could look for what is the the patient's mental status, is it normal, yes or no, is the respiratory rate greater than 22, yes or no, what is their systolic blood pressure that's less than 100 again. So if you can't recognise a sick patient, you you can't treat one, so I'd always focus on the recognition first off. I would then go on and once you've recognised the patient, deliver the sepsis 6. So I would deliver oxygen, titrating to saturation of 94 to 98%, no higher than 98%, you don't need someone who's 100% saturated. If you have the ability to take blood cultures prior to administering the antibiotics, if you're a, a GP and you can do that, that would be helpful as well, and that would give the, the, the antibiotics specificity. Give your IV antibiotics according to your index of suspicions, again, co for a pneumonia. 
You know, if you think your patient's got meningitis, you can treat for meningitis. And just basically, IV fluid resuscitation, 250 to 500 mils and reassess. If you can, within a, a hospital setting, you could check lactate and, again, catheterise the patient, and that may help as well. I think if I got to that stage and I was in a, a remote and rural setting, I'd be the stage that I would be discussing that patient with the EMRS. Because I don't think many basics for responders will be happy prescribing vasoactive agents and the likes. And again, I wouldn't say there's a place at that point for corticosteroids and things until you're definitely confirmed the diagnosis and you're on vasopressors and it's resistant. Fantastic. Now, we probably need to just touch on COVID because it is very topical. You mentioned the fact that COVID is within that wheelhouse of septic pictures. Is there anything that you alter or do differently with the COVID patient caveat the usual sort of PPE type precautions? The first thing to say is COVID is unlike any disease that we've ever treated before. It's not like your normal bacterial pneumonia. It's not like your normal flu with your secondary bacterial pneumonia. So the first thing is I'm sure you've seen it yourself. The COVID patients when they come into hospital, pre-hospital setting, are remarkably resilient to hypoxia they come in and they're talking to you and not any oxygen in their saturations are 50% or you know they're in a trauma mask and their saturations are 80% with a COVID patient I would consider to sit by obviously wouldn't be giving the patient antibiotics because of this air depending when it is if it's in the first 7 to 10 days or within the first 2 weeks of illness I think the chance of them having a bacterial infection is very low so I wouldn't be giving the patient antibiotics the other thing to say is that COVID patients, when they come into hospital, they, they don't present with septic shock. They present with sepsis. Well, they present with a respiratory failure second to the, the SARS-CoV virus. And as a result, you don't need to you know, give them a lot of fluid. They aren't necessarily, they may be a bit tachycardic, but they're certainly maintaining their blood pressure. We would always preferentially manage these patients a bit dry to optimise their ventilation. And maybe if you want to, the thing you could do in the pre-hospital setting is as you're delivering oxygen, is ask the patient to self-prone. Having a patient lie in their abdomen significantly improves the oxygenation. And we do that in the hospital setting as well as in the level 3 ICU setting. So again, I would target saturations for about 92, maybe to 96, and ask the patient to self-prone. I wouldn't necessarily give oxygen, and I'd be cautious about administering IV fluids. If you have the ability and your patient does have a diagnosis of COVID, you know, it's been confirmed already and and you've got the ability, you could give some dexamethasone if you had it as well. You could give six milligrams of dexamethasone. And it's all stuff that is very achievable within the setting in in which we work. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned EMRS, and I guess for our more rural responders and uh, folks out on islands, they'll be well familiar with that pathway. And I guess for those of us who are slightly closer to referral centres. The patients I worry about are the ones that are are not responding to that initial treatment. Is that a sort of a a fair predictor of of mortality and bad outcome? Uh, Yeah, obviously, you know, if you're doing all the correct things and the patient continues to deteriorate, you know, deteriorating despite your best efforts. So their outcome will always be poor. What I will say, I would always continue to treat someone in the pre-hospital setting because, you know, none of us have a crystal ball about who's going to do and who isn't going to do. You know, so I'd make sure the patient maybe had a treatment escalation plan. If Again, if it was a remote and rural setting, the elderly who live in these areas may not want to be whisked away to an intensive care unit the other side of the country. It may not be part of their plans. So I think that's why it's good to have discussions about what one would want towards the end of life as well. 
brilliant. And hopefully being integrated into the communities in the way that Island GPs are, often are, yeah, um, that they're easier conversations to have. Yeah, definitely, because they're part of the community rather than a big city where you may be a tasteless name. So they've been part of the community, knowing the family, knowing their wishes is key. It's been a really useful summary just to remind and revise because I guess all of us have that awareness of sepsis, but it's one of those things that certainly I find, unless I'm touching on it regularly, it starts to slip from the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'll just go back to you know, follow your ATE approach in, in, in any patient you see, be it sepsis or not, and I don't think you'll go wrong would be my advice. And if you have the ability and you're confident sepsis, you know, if you can do blood cultures and deliver antibiotic, that being appreciated, and give the fluid and continually reassess. But just go through your ATE and the sepsis 6, and I don't think you'll be giving your patients the best opportunity. Fantastic. I was just about to ask you for your three sort of takeaway top tips, but, but I guess that will be the three, I'd imagine. Yeah, I have, definitely. Kevin, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. And thank you again for asking me. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.